So welcome to Agility at Work. I'm Kim Leary, co-host of this podcast, along with my colleague, Mike Wheeler. Hey, Kim. Hey, Mike. Remind me, your wife has had a role in city town government, yes? Yes. She, um, after graduating, I'll brag on her, magna cum laude from Harvard College, she went on to the Graduate School of uh, Design, where she got a master's in city and regional planning. And that was her career for uh, for decades, first as a planner and then as uh, essentially a town manager of a town that population, if I say 10,000, I'm pretty close. Small town, big controversies about development, about public resources and so forth. And um, since she was not an elected official, she was in a position of having great responsibility and, shall we say, limited authority. Yeah. And yet she had some, she wouldn't say it, but I would, some real triumphs in making that a um, stronger, better uh, organized community. It's great to hear about her experience. And it r- reminds me that uh, even those who are elected or selected for leadership or authority roles, you know, they people are at, at that moment often feel like it's on them, on their shoulders to try to solve these problems that in fact require the community and require the stakeholders to be engaged. You know, our guest today, I'm happy to say, is Larry Suskind, who has a lot of experience in working to develop a process of working with those who are really close to the challenge at hand. Well, Larry and I go way back. You've known him a number of years as well, but um, he was a principal figure in getting me started in the negotiation world and remains both a colleague and a dear friend. It's always interesting to hear his views on um, how we as communities can make um, better decisions that earn people's uh, support and input. And what it means to truly be in service to the goals that you are stewarding. Let's invite Larry in. Does consensus mean that everybody has to agree with the ultimate result? I think consensus is achieved when a group agrees ahead of time that they will seek unanimity but settle for overwhelming agreement as long as everyone agrees that they've done their best to respond to the concerns of the last few who have trouble saying okay and they need to get to the point where the people who cannot join formally the agreement acknowledge that everyone's done everything they can to respond to the concerns of those outliers by revising the terms of the agreement or promising to add some kind of contingent uh, elements. So so let me let me just just push on that and underline it. If the rule was for community disputes over water resources or citing hazardous waste plants and so forth, that everybody had to agree, it would mean that, carried to the extreme, that one person could say no and what was much preferred by the great majority of people would would not happen. So you're seeking consensus, but you're not, you're seeking unanimity, I should say, but not demanding it. Is that a fair translation? Yes. And settling for overwhelming agreement 
as long as the parties have made an effort to respond to those who are the last to come on board. You know, it strikes me, Larry, that the way you started off describing the three elements to the process, the first starts with uh, the willingness of those in leadership and authority roles to be consultative and to be collaborative. They have to understand that their leadership involves bringing other people on board, including folks from your group. Would that be fair to say? Yes, and it's obviously, as, as you well know, it's a service model of leadership, a facilitative model of leadership, not the model of the general at the top of the uh, chain of command in the military. That's painted the broad picture for us. Can you think of an example? I realize this is sort of a cold call. An example of a situation, might be small or big, but where most people assume that they were doomed to a deadlock, and this point of consensus, something seeking unanimity, maybe not achieving it, in fact worked out to most people's satisfaction. Can you give us a concrete example? Sure. And I can even give you a whole book called Breaking Robert's Rules that takes a case and works it through and shows what consensus approaches to common problems in cities are like uh, in practice. But I can sort of take the case from there and describe it in a couple sentences. Great. Right. The city wants to encourage the cleanup of an area that was contaminated. And the neighborhood is outraged. The poor neighborhood is outraged that this hasn't been cleaned up yet and that they always seem to get the short end of the stick. And they're worried about the health problems related to the cleanup. And the city finally finds a developer who's willing to build something there. And what the developer wants to build is a shopping center. And they're happy to pave over the hazardous soil and build on top of it and contribute to the economy of the city and so on and so forth. And the neighborhood says, wait a minute, that's not going to clean anything up. That's just going to cover it over. And after a while, they're locked into a legal case and nobody's getting anywhere. And finally, there was a suggestion of, well, maybe a mediation could help. And the city government says, well, we give up. Anybody can help. That's great. And this mediator meets with the community group and meets with the developer and the developer says, well, I guess there are other things we could do in this immediate area besides build the shopping center on this site. And uh, if we could use part of the site to do some kind of commercial development, there's adjacent land. If the city would give us that land or write down the cost of it, we could build some other commercial and housing and social service center on that site. And so the same parties, by reframing the problem with the help of a mediator, were able to see a way forward where all of their interests were met. And so they reached agreement and went ahead and did the development. You know, Larry, it sounds like uh, in a certain way, figuring out how to engage the crowd to leverage the crowd in order to solve a problem that everyone is party to. Yeah, although... I'm a little uneasy with the notion of engaging the crowd because I think you have to absolutely agree to involve the stakeholders, the people who really have something at stake. It's not just the number or the noisy or the, the conveniently identifiable folks. You really need a neutral 
to do an assessment of who are the stakeholders, make sure they're all represented. But yes, once that's the crowd, then yes, that's what we're talking about. Larry, when you started to give that example, I had two thoughts. One, um, our younger daughter's family uh, live in southern Vermont, and there was a case that's still ongoing uh, right now that's much the same, where an industrial plant had put a lot of really toxic stuff in the water. People who in that area have their own wells and so forth um, no longer can use use that water. So very expensive in terms of what the remedy is. And work has gone forward on it, but there have been lawsuits. And uh, uh, talk about stakeholders. There's the company that did the damage. There's the municipality. State government is involved. And different peoples in the community are affected uh, very differently. Uh, so unfortunately, this is a story that is told many, many times. Do you have any sense, and having worked in lots of these and also chaired the Consensus Building Institute, whether when people are successful on one dispute, on one controversy, that becomes an encouraging example for uh, other things that come up or these one-offs? No, I don't think they have to be one-offs. I think if people enter these kind of a consensus building process with an awareness that it's the process and the commitment they're making to each other that is potentially what's going to give them an agreement, and then they get an agreement, those same people, as they interact with themselves and others in the same area, all use that successful case if they reached agreement, and you then begin to see legitimacy attached to Leaders saying, oh, let's do what they did over in that context. So my best friend was in that committee, or I know the guy that did that. The, the learning, the public learning, enhances legitimacy of an idea that would otherwise be hard to sell to people who've never tried it, never seen it. So, But it does require a, a change. You mentioned that before you gave the example, uh, your book, a terrific book, I might add, Breaking Robert's Rules of Order. I buy in completely to the argument, but we're used to public events being governed by procedural rules where somebody has the floor, motions are made, things are out of order. I invite you to uh, share your view why that is all wrong and why we need to turn it upside down. I found over time that it's better if I don't say I want to turn it upside down. I just say that I want to do but something. I want to do something before that. Yeah. And what we're going to do is run the consensus building process before that, not to make a decision, but to make a proposal, and then to have the formal process begin with the proposal that was made by everybody who's now come to the hearing or now in the room. And guess what? When they make the proposal, everybody votes yes. My concern is less in trying to get people not to do what they're used to doing, but rather getting them to make a little space to try something before they do what they're used to doing. And then the product of the consensus building process is the input to the formal process that they're used to, but there's no fight when that happens. So what are the, I mean, this sounds like a, a much better way of going about things. What are the 
barriers that, that you and your team have encountered in trying to introduce this way of working to communities and stakeholder groups? Uh, very quickly, three, three. The first is attitudes of leadership, which you know well. Just as I said, if it can't get the people in charge to let the stakeholders participate in producing a proposal to them, not taking away their decision power, then you can't do it. Um, the, the second thing is that people are not used to having to pay for neutral services. They always can find the money to for all sides to pay for lawyers, but they seem unable to find a way to split the cost of having a neutral party help them. It's a trivial cost, usually relative to the scale of what's involved, but it isn't a budget line that anyone has. And so I have to explain to them that just take what you had put aside to pay for the litigation and would just have everybody contribute a little bit from what they would have paid for litigation, and that way we can cover the cost. And the, the third thing is that people are really suspicious of an offer to genuinely participate and to engage. And, they'll, and people who are strong advocates say, there's no way a press is going to reach agreement. I, I can't come into a process and expect those guys to agree with me on anything. It's fruitless. And because people haven't experienced it, they presume that the process of consensus building is going to sound like what happens at the hearing where everybody just takes a strong position and yells at each other. But instead, once they get into it and they see that you're talking about a kind of joint problem-solving process and they need it to be managed and instructed by someone who knows how to do it, they can handle it. But their initial assumption is it can't work. Part, part of the thing is that I'm sure you make this case, it isn't bad enough that the expense of litigation, it isn't bad enough that when you're going to court, it takes forever, so there's a lot of uncertainty. The answer is when it goes to court, judges are very limited in what they can do. They can declare winners and losers. But in your example, there's no way a judge would have had the authority, even if he or she had the insight, of expanding that problem and bringing in the other land and figuring a much more creative design. It's simply beyond their their competence. And it seems to me as you're trying to overcome those barriers, there can be some lessons about what happens if step by step they want to litigate this thing. You know, it also, uh, Mike, reminds me of, you know, how we approach leadership development and, and training. It is right, Larry, that you are talking about a service or facilitative model of leadership, and we teach that, and we uh, encourage people to think that way, but the skills for being able to collaborate with neutrals aren't necessarily ones that are currently in our portfolio. Can you say a little more about what skills, if you will, or what mindset or what attitudes we might try to inculcate in our leadership students to make consensus building of this type more possible? I do think it's about mindset more than skills per se. I talk about a service model of leadership. We see it in the private sector too. There's a distinction between, and I don't, I don't know that it was because they were instructed in how to do it. I just think there's a set of people who end up in senior positions in the private sector who see themselves in service to the best interests of the organization, and others 
who are managers either because people wanted them to or because the only way they can imagine it is that they have to tell everybody what to do. It has to be their vision. They have to implement. They have to deal with the obstacles. One is a service model, and the other is is more of the managerial, uh, authoritative managerial model. And my sense is this is about values and attitude and therefore mindset. It's really not so much skills. Anyone thinks that they're managing and leading on behalf of others to get the best outcome for the others is going to be open to different ways of doing it. And when someone says the way to do it is to get all the people that you're leading involved in making proposals that you can then carry forward, they're either going to see that as their role or they're going to see that as antithetical to their role. I think what you can do is teach stories of people that have done that, right? There's a wonderful program online. The former managing director of McKinsey gave a a, a seminar at, I think, Cambridge or Oxford, and it's a long piece online, reflecting on his whole life as a leader. And he says it dawned on him at some point that he was in the service business as a leader. And it was shocking to him to realize that that was his job, not to solve the problems nobody else could solve, but to help them solve it. So I, I think there's stories. There's people who do it. You can show them. You can tell them. And people need to feel it's okay to bring that mindset into a leadership role. Well, we have in our MBA program, maybe 10% of the students have military experience. And these are people who might have been first lieutenants or captains um, in the Army or some other branch. And there's a very deep service ethic, as I understand it, um, in the military that maybe the rest of us can learn from. I know that we're time constrained here, uh, but if I can mention a couple of things, Larry, that people might look at, we've already mentioned the Breaking Roberts Rules, which I commend. You also uh, co-authored a book uh, with Pat Field dealing with an angry public. And the Consensus Building Institute, the very simple URL, C for consensus, B for building, I, CBI.org. And people can learn more about this and uh, maybe plant a seed in their communities. So thank you very much for joining Kim and me and uh, uh, taking a little time out from your busy schedule to uh, be with us. Always usefully provocative, Larry. Thank you. Thank you. I enjoyed it and happy to revisit it some future time. That'll be great. Thank you. Let's remind people about how they can chat with us and with their fellow listeners on our Negotiation 360 website. Well, it's not just the chat that they can have with us and other listeners, but there are other resources uh, on the site. Um, you can find my Negotiation 360 self-assessment and best practice app. There are links to online courses, and we're putting up articles that you and I have written together and maybe some others as well. So there's lots of stuff on agile negotiation and adaptive leadership. Much of it is free. We've even simplified the URL for podcast listeners. Here's how to find us. Just key in the letter N, as in negotiation, and the numbers 360.expert. That's N360.expert, and you'll find us.